Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. As we approach the end of the year, we've been reflecting on our favorite conversations throughout 2023. But with nearly 200 episodes to choose from, you can imagine the challenge. But decisions have to be made. So here I am with my top three favorite conversations all about music. Where we live, senior producer Tess Terrible and I were talking about nostalgia. Then came our conversation with John Androsik of Five for Fighting, a soft rock band that topped the charts in the early 2000s with songs like Superman and 100 Years. This was one of my favorites because he talked about how music marks our memories and how it can be healing during difficult times. And now during a time when we may need some comfort, I started the conversation by asking John how his hit single Superman came about. You know... Here we are over 20 years later. It's still sometimes hard to talk about what happened with Superman. You know, initially it was just one of thousands of songs that I wrote. Um, It was a gift. It came very quickly. You know, most songs take months to craft. That song basically came within an hour. Um, My joke is I've been looking for that hour ever since, but that's another chat for my therapist. But, um, but, uh, you know, it um, when we were making the America Town record, you know, I kind of fancy myself as a rocker, you know, listen to The Who and Zeppelin. And we had this little ballad. We even called it this little song. And my producer, Greg, said, you know, you got to put that little song on your record. And I'm like, no, you know, maybe I'll give it to James Taylor or Celine or Barbara Streisand. And he's like, you got to put it on your record. So we started recording it. And, and as we were recording it, we thought we had something a little different. You know, it was the late 90s, early 2000. And you know, the piano really wasn't on the radio back then. It wasn't the 70s. It wasn't Billy Joel. It wasn't Elton John. So it was a little different. And so we, you know, we recorded it. Um, I started seeing, you know, some folks kind of react to it when I played it live. But it was not the first single. The first single was a song called Easy Tonight. And it did just well enough to get us to one more song. And the record company came to me and said, all right, John, you know, we'll give you one more uh, what do you want? What do you want to go out with? You know, before you have to go get a real job. And I said, you know what? If I'm going down in flames, let's try this little Superman song. And they said, well, you know, it's really not something that's radio friendly. It doesn't really fit the market. But if that's what you choose, that's what we choose. And and so we started with Superman, and it struggled. It struggled at radio uh, because it was different. And how that you know, you guys are in the radio business. You understand how you test and you know do your research. And it was struggling and struggling, but there were a few programmers who really believed in it. They they saw um, they saw the reaction from some of their listeners, and it it hit the tipping point. And I, I'll never forget. I got a call, you know, when when Superman was struggling, and they said, "John, something's weird's happening. Your song Superman is number one in the Philippines." The the Philippines, really? They said, "Yeah, your song's number one in the Philippines." So we started to see some traction and then kind of once it kind of kind of hit that tipping point, it, we saw that it was going to be a popular song 
But then, as you mentioned, you know, after 9-11, I was actually in London uh, on 9-11. And like everybody was horrified seeing the first plane hit. And then when the second plane hit, I started calling everybody I knew in New York, couldn't get through, you know, was stuck in London for a week. We forget that there were no planes in the skies, how eerie that was. And I'd heard that some news stations and CNNs and, and, and of the world were using Superman to recognize the firefighters and their, and their families. But I didn't have a sense till I got back what Superman was becoming, especially in New York. And then the concert for New York, they called me for that. And here I was, this young guy who just got used to hearing his song on the radio for the first time, now playing on this Madison Square Garden stage with every living icon of, of mine um, in any other situation, it would have been, you know, a dream come true, but you know, it, it was not, it was, it was very solemn and spending time with the families, but seeing how that song made a difference. And, and frankly, to this day, you know, 20 years later, the song, you know, in hundred years still, still seemed to have a, an impact in the culture. So it's, it's very humbling. It's, it's still hard to describe. I, try to wrap my heads around it, but I'm glad songs like that were out there at that time, not just my songs, but when the country really needed that, um, that release and that escape and that solace. I think what you just said, I, I feel like that would resonate with with a lot of people. You know, I I remember September 11 when where I was when when the news was announced and, and all that and want to also talk to you, you know, how, how did you process seeing that song that basically became the song to honor the victims and survivors from those attacks, especially when you think about the origins of the song. You know, what was the inspiration for you to write that song in the first place? And I mean, the sort of the end point of that is very different, I'm assuming, from from when you first started to pen this song. No, of course. You know, when I wrote it, I was, you know, a struggling singer-songwriter, you know, having the door slammed in my face. And in a way, it was kind of a selfish song. And and not that there's anything wrong with that. You know, you're a young person pursuing your dream and, and you know, kind of hitting all these kind of bumps in the road. And it's not easy to be me, right? And and in my mind, it was not easy to be me. And, and it frankly wasn't. Any artist kind of pursuing their craft and and um, kind of getting shot down at every turn, it's, it's, it's tough. So I, I certainly understand that, that, you know, that's kind of where it came from. But the nice thing with songs, when you put them out in the universe, is people take them and they apply them to their lives in a way that matters to them. So really, in a way, it doesn't matter where I wrote it. It's how people use it. And, you know, through Superman, I, you know, I've seen so many people use it in different ways, especially our troops. I started getting emails from our troops uh, during the Iraq war about how they use music in so many different ways to pump themselves up, to calm down, to escape, to focus, to release. And so it really, I was educated very quickly, especially with the concert for New York, to see how that song made such a difference for so many people um, to recognize those heroes of 9-11, um, to, to be able to sing and, and pay tribute, to be able to cry, to be able to smile and remember. It, it was a quick education about the power of music. And, you know, we talk about fame, fortune, sales, you know, record, gold records. But, it, you know, when I played the concert for New York, it wasn't really my experience that taught me. But, you know, seeing the Who blast the roof off Madison Square Garden and giving all those people who'd been down at ground zero doing the unmentionable, wading through those rubble, that rubble, a chance to release and to sing and to cry 
I remember when I was singing Superman, we had audio problems. So I really couldn't hear myself at Madison Square Garden. And I just looked out into the audience and here's this big union worker, a beer in each hand, you know, tough guy who'd probably been down at ground zero, pulling up rocks and singing Superman and looking at me. And he started crying and I just focused on him through the whole the whole song. I, I don't even remember anything else. So, you know, that kind of experience really kind of transformed my my thinking of what what is music really and what is what is our purpose and and how can it impact things um, beyond beyond just, you know, you know, church success. And and still after, you know, after 9-11, again, you know, you still can't put it in the context of, of having a song like that. And then you have the question of how do I follow that? Because <laughs> it'll never happen, hopefully ever again. But how can you continue to have a career when your first song is is that kind of song? And that really, that was a struggle for me. It, it took a couple years to try to come up with a song that kind of stood on its own. But that also added a certain pressure that was unique. I'm always grateful the songs out there and even to this day that that it, it makes its way and, and, and helps so many different causes and a new generation of people finding it, which is also a little crazy. Man, one man to ride With clouds between their knees I'm only a man A sailor at Digging for kryptonite On this one-way street Only a man well, I think, you know, chart success aside, of course, that's a reality for, for I think, most people who work in the arts. Without that success, how are you supposed to eat or pay the bills, right? But we also talk about, you know, music as a way of healing and, and process. As you've mentioned, you know, thank you so much for painting that picture in Madison Square Garden. I feel like that would resonate with many of us, whether or not you're a music fan or not. Uh, but do you, 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 and you also mentioned 100 years earlier. Do you think with, with, both the success of Superman and A Hundred Years, you know, just it's it's so broad. These two songs they were able to reach. Do you think they both set you up for for opportunities to write more songs that deeply resonate with people? And especially since both of these songs, like you mentioned, some ways they may not be radio friendly, or maybe the lyrics are not your typical lyrics about romance and and whatnot. You know they become anthems and people really rally and and come together what are your thoughts about that and and what do you, why do you think people really connect with songs like that like superman in a hundred years you know i think they have a sentiment that people can relate relate to i think with superman we're all human and at the end of the day superman's about our innate humanity and we can't be the rock for everyone you know as much as we'd like to be superman for everybody we can't we're just human beings and it's not easy to be me it applies to all of us i think we all can relate to that especially adults um that song did very well with adults which never happens with pop music and i think it's for that reason and i think 100 years also you know we talk about living the moment all the time a lot of these cliches but really they are kind of integral to to our wellness and and with 100 years, you know, I struggle with recognizing the moment. I I dwell in the past, I future trip. So a lot of these are little post-it notes to myself that I think we all kind of feel at times in our life. And I think with 100 years too, like that thought of, okay, the moment's not always great, but here it is and here's our lives. And then people take that for graduations and weddings and funerals and, and it becomes the home video. I think 
again, I think what I'm saying is stuff we just all feel. It's just kind of put into a different different kind of medium and 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 context. And no, you're right. Having having hundred years come after Superman really kind of took me out of the one hit wonder world and allowed me to have a career. And um, you know, when you when you have a couple songs like that, it gives you freedom too to kind of just pursue other things. Um, outside of just let's just try to have another hit and let's try to let these songs kind of um, raise awareness for other causes and and gives me a platform you're right you know you you can't make another record without it without some kind of income to do it especially back then it's different now with social media you can kind of do it yourself but back then it was like either have a have another kind of popular song or you know go back and work at the family business which I was doing anyways but so yeah, I mean they allowed me to set me up to kind of pursue things beyond it and and like the more recent songs that are not hit songs but they have they have a a sentiment to try to make a difference in the world and and to me some of those songs are as more as critical as as the hits and and but of course you're not set up for that without Superman in 100 years. You know, music it seems like in this case belongs to the whole world as you've yeah. learned, you know, the Philippines really embraced it somehow and and sort of extended it to here and now here here we are 20 years later having this conversation and and i think it leads me to want to ask like music also often holds memories and a deep connection to the time when they're most popular and i mean i can't tell you how many times i've heard it on what was the wb at the time with all yeah. of all of the, <laughs> all the yeah. shows and and yeah. whatnots and and so do you do you think on some level your your music holds a kind of nostalgia and connection back to the early 2000s because i think that's an era that's somehow very special you know it's it's the only time that we don't really call it a decade we call it the early 2000s and, mm. and i think at this moment too with social media for some reason, too, we're seeing a lot more people looking back and reflecting over that time. Why do you think that is? Well, I think music marks our memories, right? Most of the music that we kind of love throughout our life is the music that we found as teenagers and young adults. That's because that's when we were first exploring music and, and that's when we were going to concerts and that's what kind of formed our musical taste. So, you know, when I hear Every Breath You Take by the police, you know, I'm at Zuma 6 you know, on on the shore there with my pals playing volleyball, listening to my favorite song. And it just whisks you right back to where you were when you first heard it. And and it's beautiful. It's it's a great way to mark memories, not only personally, but historically. I mean, when you think of, of the songs of the 60s, the protest songs, it's a way to analyze history through the times and the arts and the culture and the music. So I think, um, you know, the song I wrote about Afghanistan, Blood on My Hands, very similar. You know, it's a song that marks the time. Here's something that happened. Here's some artists that wrote some songs about it. Let's listen to those and get a sense of, of some of the feelings. So that's the great thing about it. And I love, you know, I love hearing a song I haven't heard in 15, 20 years. And it'll just pull me right back. You know, Frampton comes alive. You know, oh, there I was in my my room. You know, Purple Rain, right? You know, you know, playing that record till it basically wore out, you know, and and such good times. So I think that's that's one of the pure, pure beauty of, of music is, is marking our memories. And and we hear something, we, we, we have that great feeling again. And um, that's why I listen to kind of 70s on the 70 all the time, <laughs> you know, because that's where I grew up. And that's, that's where a lot of the joy and the innocence kind of was as well. 
You've been listening to John Androsik of Fight for Fighting. Coming up next, we'll be hearing from Connecticut hyperpop artist Eric DLA. We'll be chatting about the importance of music when it comes to building community. This is where we live. Stay with us. It may sound absurd, but don't be naive. Even heroes have the right to bleed. I may be disturbed, but won't you concede? Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're listening back to some of our favorite conversations on where we live in 2023. I went for a musical theme, and our fall intern, Letitia Peters, helped produce this segment with Connecticut hyperpop artist Eric DLA. I chose this conversation because it was so inspiring to hear from such a young artist. I loved hearing about his experiences carving out a career in music as a Gen Zer his deep philosophical musings about being a human being, and the laughter we shared about how life doesn't usually go where we think it go. Let's take a listen. Uh, well, specifically, I grew up in Fairfield County. I grew up in uh, Monroe, Connecticut, around uh, the Trumbull and Newtown area. Uh, so shout out. Um, but I think uh, really my family um, in being uh, specifically not just from uh, Connecticut, but being Puerto Rican from Connecticut, I think being uh surrounded by music my entire life was definitely something that affected the uh the choices or the um creative i guess uh response later in my teenage years uh a lot of the music that my parents played and they're listening right now so shout out to my parents um a lot of them uh like a lot of the music that they played was like a lot of 80s freestyle a lot of 80s pop music a lot of stuff that they grew up on so you know i um, immensely thank thank them for putting me on at such a young age well i definitely hear those influences in your music and you've also I'm so glad <laughs> you definitely captured the vibes that's for sure and you've also talked <laughs> about connecticut in some interviews and it's not always glowing I <laughs> <laughs> you, you actually, so you have a song with Glaive that's called F This Town. Can you tell yes, us indeed. a little bit about that song and how would you sort of describe Connecticut's impact on your journey as an artist? So contrary to popular belief, it's really not about Connecticut or about like <laughs> anything that revolves around the state. I think um, that we were just like, you know, messing about just trying to figure out a hook at that moment we're we're young lads so we're, we're we're throwing out anything out there so um i think uh the way that that song really came to be and, and um the way that we incorporated just like our uh maybe like uh in little innuendos of our uh 
lives being both of us are from extremely small uh areas and small communities i think uh i think that song is definitely an ode but definitely not an intentional ode to <laughs> to what we had going on well i think that makes sense i think sometimes you don't realize what you're doing until you're actually doing it or you have a thing right and so i Very guess you know yeah. yeah so with i mean with what you're saying too you know the town is not a literal town but it's definitely about your experiences and and being from, you know, from Monroe or from Connecticut, you know, what about where you're from? Does it limit your ability to do what you want or does it actually expand your ability to do what you want? You know, what was your experience like? I think that question can be answered in like two different ways because physically, yes. But I think a lot of the um, a lot of the shackles, I think, or, or the or the or the handicap, I think, is um, mental because I really don't think it matters where you are. I feel like in the world, you know, as long as you have, you know, something that you could call um, your own, I guess, in a creative aspect, I don't think it really matters. But um, definitely, growing up and in my younger years, I was very, you know, I guess hyper. Um, hyper attentive to the fact that I was in this like state line and I couldn't leave this state line, you know, mm -hmm. but as soon as I was able to leave, um, I was very <laughs> excited. I, I don't want to make it sound like I was begging to leave Connecticut, but um, I feel like in those types of areas revolving around career base, like such as music or anything with the arts or creative, um, it's not really uh, paid attention to or like, um, help festered it's more of like a situation where you grow up in a town like i grew up in it's like oh you, sure. you know graduate go to college get the job get the wife and live a happy you know right live a happy rest of your days but um yeah i don't know i guess the different paths and uh i am learning to appreciate what connecticut did for my brain and um <laughs> sure it affected me yeah, no, I think there's something very valuable being able to cross over the state lines and, and get a different experience. And of course, you as a musician, you sure. know, having sure. ex having experiences and different kinds of experiences, I can imagine it being really important to your to your songwriting you know, experience as well. And so do you do you come and perform in Connecticut? We you know we we know you have been in Boston and York. Never, I think, oh, yeah, OK. Never, never done a show in Connecticut. And yet. you plan to. to do it. Yeah, no, of course. Definitely one of these days I, I have to come through and, and, and show my face because <laughs> it's been a it's been a, a long time of I mean, we haven't really done too many shows, mm -hmm. but um now I guess we're going into that type of well that type of mode. And I was gonna I was gonna say, speaking of showing your your face, you know, how would you say that the pandemic has impacted how you got your start? You know, you you released oh, your first st man. studio album in January of twenty twenty. What a time mm -hmm. to do that. What was that like? Um, it was surreal. I mean, like any person that you ask that has direct involvement in whatever that was from 2022, I don't really want to put a, a, a expiration date on it. But um, I think from 2020, from that time, it was such a wild, wild, wild time, because everything that you would expect to happen, like um, the complete 180 opposite <laughs> happened. Um, I was not expecting for like an entire community to be born and a bunch of people enjoying music that like a bunch of people made that was just spontaneous and like not really any extreme thought of having to be a career behind it. There are like a bunch of teenagers on the internet that have now become 
uh, very well-respected creatives and, 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 and artists from just being in the crib right. <laughs> for, yeah. a, for a year. You're, you're present, actually, in the virtual space, and that's obviously very valuable to you um, because it plays such a big role, the Internet itself. So can you give us, like, a specific experience or an idea, um, especially towards, like, video games and world-building influences? How does the Internet, you know, uplift or help facilitate the sort of rumblings of your career in music? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, I think if you want to like bring up the addition of uh, video games and stuff like that, I think it was definitely something that was very important towards that community because um, if it wasn't for those, if, like those little pockets of the internet where you would find little niche communities, people who appreciate certain video games or even like soundtracks of video games on certain different you know corners of the internet or like anything that has to do with like playable media or, or like whatever i think um once more people met each other i think that allowed everyone's interest of world building and of you know um things that have to do with like playable media i think uh played a, a absolute massive role in what we have now I love a video game soundtrack. I've never actually played yes, the game Assassin's well. Creed, but I'm obsessed with the soundtrack. With the soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it's me hilarious. makes me feel like whatever I'm doing is really epic and enigmatic, yeah. and that's just not my real life. So, um, but since, <laughs> since you're big, that's break... <laughs> absolutely not true. Come on. Well, I appreciate that very, very much. <laughs> um, but since your big break in 2021, you've been described as the face of hyperpop. You know, despite your you have wow. you have a dedication to making sort of like labelless music, or you're not a fan of labels. But how do you feel about mm. this association with hyperpop, or about genres, or just labels in general? To be honest with you, and I'm like going to be 100. Um, percent I think that a lot of people. Um, like the reason why labels exist right is because you know people need to call something something because sure. you know it's very anxiety inducing to listen to something and not be able to you know wrap your head around it but um i think a lot of people don't um uh, i think whenever somebody gets asked this question especially from people from this community it's uh, definitely a confusing way to respond to it because it's, it's you know something that was a, a great time in all of our lives and a great time as um you know young people figuring out that they just found their calling and they just found their purpose. But um, I think when you, when it gets brought up in a sense where it was like a past thing and now it's like, okay, we're here now, three years later, what are we, what, what are we doing? Are we still going to call this that? Are we still going to, you know, do something? I think a lot of people in their, in their um, journey of maturing through their art and through their creation, they, uh, they tend to like, I don't know, disregard, but I think uh, that was a point in my life where it was uh, a beautiful moment, and uh, and I will never forget it. And it was it was so great, and it has affected my art. Uh, I think completely as, as a sense of you know making things that don't attach to the, uh, the standard status quo or the norm. And as you sort of continue to unattach yourself to that, you know, can you speak more on the ways that young artists like yourself and Gen Zers in general are helping to defy labels, like if your friends or people that you work with, are you seeing that happening more? Oh, of course. I, I think it's like the accessibility that music has now is, is the reason why things are bending. And I think a lot of people are, you know, confused or a lot of people like um, don't really appreciate it because if we, we look at statistics actually for music right now, a lot of the music being streamed, especially on 
um, you know, streaming services and DSPs are all uh, old music. It's 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 like the last, you know, the music that was made in the last 10 to 15 years. But I feel like um, with what we have going on now, I think so many people are missing out on this beautiful, I, I, I could say renaissance, I feel like, because um, there are things that are being done that are solely like so unorthodox mm-hmm. that it makes it sound so beautiful. And everybody now has a chance to like, you know, take a stab at what, you know, the beautiful language of music is. And I think, um, yeah, I think a lot of people are missing out because of, you know, just blatant just fear. It may not seem like fear. Sorry if I'm rambling. No, but no. it may not seem like fear. But uh, I feel like a lot of people are, are are anxious when it comes to art and consuming art and, and, and consuming music. Sure. And and with that in mind, too, you know, how would you describe your fan base? You know, who finds you? Because it's uh, oh my goodness. I mean, the Internet <laughs> is a black hole. It, it It's a great and scary place sometimes, depending on what you're doing. Uh, but how would you describe well, your fan so, base? It's so terrifying. It is the scariest place on Earth. But um, I think how I would describe my fan base, I think I don't know. I think it's 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 like a two-way thing because i i have fans that just love me for the music and i have fans that love me for just my personality or the way i guess um i am as a human being which is sick and amazing and i I love that um but yeah i think a lot of my fans just understand my sentiments and they and they get my school of thought and we have similar schools of thought i guess um because a lot of people are just bored like you know right. there's there's a lot of music that we we've, we've listened to and it's been out for a pretty long time and i'm not gonna say that it's 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 not amazing timeless music but like i don't know there's 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 a time for new things to come through i feel like we've just been repeating the same thing over and over and over and over again sure and especially with the last three years i'm sure some newness in that sense can be really refreshing and i know we've talked a lot about how central a role the internet plays but can you also talk about the importance of actually making that tangible move getting off the internet because you've talked about how just leaving your room was a big deal and we're talking about you know you're putting your face out there and your person out there you know how has that experience been so what no one tells you as a teenager who's going into art and making music is that you're reanimating yourself not only as a human in real life that your friends and your family know but you're also reanimating yourself on a plane of existence that everyone has access to that will never be deleted that will you know cease to exist i'm sorry will continue to exist like forever so um i think it was a really stressful um you know time for myself because i was what the modern times are definitely declaring it chronically online and I was very deep into uh, internet consumption along with my music, and that's you know how the you know that's how we got to this point. But um, I think once I turned seventeen years old and I graduated high school, and I was like, "Hey, mom and dad, uh, I wanna I wanna go pursue you know what I want to go pursue with music," and I moved out to Atlanta. Um, it was a time period for me of just, you know, every single emotion that you could, you know, possibly think of as a person, person moving out on their own and being by themselves. But right. um, it was an absolute necessity. And I think that especially with how, um, you know, the world is right now and how a lot of, you know, teenagers and uh, the new generation that's coming up is using the Internet for self-medication of just distracting themselves from 
you know, the powers that be. Um, I think it's definitely a, a um, it's definitely something we have to talk about in a in a creative sense where you know, not only do we have to be on the internet and use our internet inspirations, but we actually have to go outside and experience life because I feel like we forget to do that as well. Right, a little balance between the two worlds, I think, and and because the internet has brought you such joy, and you were able to make your art, find people who appreciate the art, and find friends and like-minded people on the internet. How do you see your role in shaping the culture and creating community, both physical and virtual world? You know, big picture and long term. Ah, uh, big picture and long term. I just hope it lasts for as long as it does. I mean, I think that being somebody who's able to create a community and create uh, a bunch of like-minded individuals that are you know together because they like something that i created is is something that i that's something you don't ask for that's something that mm -hmm. you that, that is like impossible and it's handed to you in, in a sense if you deserve it or if you've created something that deserves that level of appreciation but um yeah, I mean, long term, I just hope it continues. And I hope that, you know, we just grow stronger and stronger throughout what we throughout what we do. And what's your message to young alternative kids from small sort of societally uniform parts of the world, as we talked about earlier, who want to carve out a different path for themselves? You know, something that's that may not be typical, um, but I feel like this is an unorthodox moment. Of course not. I think that, you know, a call back to I think what we said previously is that it's it's two it's two physical battles. It's it's uh it's it's, you know, actual being here and, you know, being feeling that feeling of uh being stuck and not being able to escape and having that, you know, everlasting, you know, stagnant just you know, I'm I'm here and this is what I'm confined to versus the um uh Reverse is being excited for the future and being happy that, you know, that you know that it's impossible to be stuck in one place forever. And uh, there's experience waiting for you everywhere. I think um, I think it's just a thing that's so common with living over in the areas that we grew up in. That is just um, you feel unappreciated and you feel not attached to whatever you, you know, are spawned in pretty much and i think that um it, it definitely hurts but you know it, it, it it's it's a cliche but it'll it'll all it'll all get better well cliches are cliches for a reason i think there's a lot of truth in cliches right and i'm sure oh, what you just shared would resonate with so many people and sort of a counter question to what I just asked is, you know, do you what are you, what's your message to older generations who may be listening? Um, what do you hope they get from this conversation? I think that I've realized now from from uh, just just recently turning twenty one and looking at people who are you know young making music right now as well, or younger than me. But um, I was gonna say, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think. We all have, if you just look at history and you look at the things that happen with hip hop, with pop, with every single genre, there's always going to be a group of older people who are like, oh, this isn't what we had when we were growing up. And I think that we need as, you know, Gen Z to stop that culture of hating on every single new generation that um, pops up, I feel like. I talk to my pops right now like he would tell me something about like how 
music right now sounds crazy and that he doesn't want to listen to like half of the stuff that I put on. But um, I think being understanding of creation and being understanding of change and change being such an important thing mm -hmm. uh, with not only just music and creation and art, but just life. Um, I think being accepting of, you know, how people are going to do things differently and how that could affect the way music is made just needs to be, uh, I think, talked about a little bit more, I think, with our uh, with our generation, because I catch myself already hating and I'm like, oh, I can't do this. Don't I do can't. That. I can't. Like, <laughs> I can't. I can't do this. I have to be attentive and, you know, I'd be a hypocrite if I did that. Sure. And I, I always find myself learning so much um, by by those conversations, you know, thinking I think I, I thought I knew something, but I did not. Um, so keep, keep your mind open. In <laughs> yeah, a sense. Story, yeah, yeah, story of all of our lives, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And and change seems to be the theme of life here. And I have a final question for you, um, but I just would okay, love okay. to know, you know, your experience so far. Is there something that surprised you? What's the most surprising Some, thing for you? Something that surprised me. Oh, my God. I feel like that's such a great question that I'm so unprepared for. Um there was a lot that surprised me honestly i didn't i didn't expect to be um so like obviously growing up in a place like this you know everyone has a different personality type and you know i definitely wasn't a huge socialite or a or, or, or somebody who uh went out a lot and you know spoke to people but it's crazy how you get put into a situation where you would never expect that this would be happening to you or you never thought that you would be the person that uh, took a, this type of career path, but I don't know. It was I think it, what was surprising is that I it seemed like everything fell into place, like everything locked into its um its its station and just you know. And now I'm the person that I am. I guess I did not expect to be able to <laughs> to be able to honestly to get on here and speak to you. Like I I never expected that I would be able to do this, but you know, I guess uh, with change, things just happen. And, well, you know, we grow out of old tendencies. Well, it helps you uh, appreciate this. I definitely didn't expect to be here and having this conversation with you either in the best way possible. <laughs> so we appreciate, Amazing. Your, we appreciate your time so much. You've been listening to singer, oh, you songwriter. So You've been listening to singer, songwriter and producer Eric DLA. This is his latest single, Kickstand. Eric, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it thank and you, learned so much. Thank you. Coming up, we're revisiting our conversation with Ashley Hamill. She's also a Connecticut singer and songwriter who is now based in Jakarta, Indonesia. This is where we live. Stay with us. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Earlier in the summer, we spoke with Connecticut singer and songwriter Ashley Hamill, who's creating a musical storm in Jakarta, Indonesia. In this final segment, we hear about her upbringing in Meriden and how her experience influenced her music. So I started writing music when I was in high school, and I kind of did it secretly. I, I got a guitar from my friends, like, brother-in-law and I was secretly writing songs and then in the junior my junior year I performed for like a talent night and I remember some of the girls afterwards and I played my original song it was like a song about my crush you know as we do <laughs> and, um, 
I remember one of the, uh, this girl that I didn't really know, but she was kind of like in an adjacent social circle, you know, she came up to me the next day and was like, Ashley, you made me cry with that song. And I was like, dang, I have some power here. Like, wow, okay, let's keep going. Um, but it wasn't until I was 25 that I realized that I needed to actually pursue this in a more legitimate and serious way. And that was with the um, with the release of my first EP called By the Window in 2014, sorry, excuse me, in 2014. And this was as you were growing up in Meriden. So how did you uh, develop your talent? And you did this in secret, too. That's amazing. Um, so kind of a lot of my experience, and I talk a lot about this in my music, is kind of uh, straddling a lot of different lines and, and boundaries in our in our society. So I grew up in Meriden and then I moved to Berlin um, before my uh, last year of middle school and then high school. And so those, those are very different environments, um, you know, going from kind of being a, a white presenting person to all of a sudden being a person of color. And I don't know, a lot of my mixed people out there probably can feel the same where in different uh, environments, you kind of switch races or you switch like your role in, in these places sometimes. And so uh, that was uh, kind of a shock to me also. A, a lot of different things. And so uh, New England Baby is kind of about that, looking for a place where you finally can belong, kind of fit in. Um, but I did start writing music in Berlin, in Berlin High School. Shout out <laughs> to them. Hey. Yeah. And because you, you just mentioned sort of representation of yourself and depending mm -hmm. on on where you're at. So we you know, we introduced you know you're in Jakarta you moved there um, for music and we'll definitely uh, dig a little deeper into that uh, in a little bit but but especially with what you just shared you know what point did it become clear to you that Indonesia was where you needed to go to uh, to continue your music career? Yeah, um, a lot of people are surprised at that choice. Even Indonesians they have a little bit of like a self-deprecating sense of themselves. And so they'll ask me, like, why Indonesia? Why Jakarta? Like, why would you come here? And, you know, the city is has its challenges, but it is so amazing. And there's so much energy here. All of the most talented people come to Jakarta, you know, from the region. This is a, the fourth most populous nation in the world. It's also like the most secret nation in the world. Americans don't know anything about Indonesia. And when I was there playing uh, playing some shows, I had a little tour throughout Connecticut. I got all this nonsense, crazy things happening. People trying to like connect with me over this foreign place, but like just kind of in a in an uh, in an irrelevant way. You know, they tell me about India. They introduced me as coming from India. Someone asked me if I was spending time in China. I'm like, you know, my family is Indonesian. Like, what is happening right now? Um, so it's kind of my job to kind of talk about Indonesia. And so why I went there, I kind of played a lot of the gigs that I could play. I play folk music, you know, and in New England, folk music is very white. And so I saw my future opening up as having to play for all of these, you know, homogenous spaces. To me, um, I, I experienced this a lot when I was playing uh, cover shows, wedding gigs, and also in my original music. 
I feel like I'd either be playing for like 90% white audiences or really mixed diverse audiences. There wasn't really a lot of um, in between. Um, and so I saw my future opening up as having to to do all that and constantly receive, you know, these microaggressions and having to educate. Um, and I just felt so exhausted by that prospect. And so, you know, it being perhaps time for me to move to a city to make better connections, find better resources and structures. And um, New York, it's right. It's it's crazy there. It's very expensive. Um, Boston's not really an option. L.A. I don't know anybody in L.A. So I thought Jakarta. You know, I had been there a few times with my family. I even played a gig there after my first EP in 2014, and the response there was incredible. You know, everybody's really listening. They're so excited that you're here. Um, and they also are writing in English a lot. They're always on their phones. So they're connected with you on social media. You can continue to tell them stories and talk about your music. Um, and the, you know, the opportunities um, are just, it, it, they're kind of exploding for me right now, alhamdulillah. So um, yeah, Jakarta has been good. It's it's so interesting to hear you talk about your experience in terms of being sort of an American singer-songwriter in Indonesia and, and sort of the comments that you're making because when I first learned that you're in Jakarta, I actually had the warm and fuzzies because my best friend from childhood is from Jakarta and she talks about Jakarta all the time. So I actually have this very familiar feeling with it. So it's a it's an interesting contrast to hear you talk about your experience. And mm-hmm. um, so... We want to get back to um, talking about your decision to move there in a in a second here, but I also want to sort of jump to your newest single, "A New England Baby." You produced this entirely in Indonesia, right? Like, what was that experience like? Hmm. Um, yeah. You know, coming to a new city, like anybody who's moved somewhere, you've got to kind of restart your your network. And in music, it's so important, right? We support each other. You know, you have to know your community. And so I just kind of took the same concepts that I had in my in my uh, former and still ongoing communities um, in in America, and just hit the ground. You know, showed up to people's shows. I'm involved in the Jakarta blues community here, which to me blues was not like a thriving thing in Connecticut. But these cats can play, and they would have open jams. So I would go, you know, hop on the mic sing a few numbers, meet everybody. Um, I'm so sorry. I forgot your question, though. <laughs> no, I was just going to just that we got to be in the moment, you know, speaking of blues and jazzies. Uh, yeah. We were talking about New England Baby and talk, how you yeah, produced yeah. that entirely in Indonesia. And what was that experience mm-hmm. like? Yeah, so uh, the first thing I had to do was find people who could help me produce this. There's a lot of pressure to kind of do it yourself. And I just... I could have the ability, but I'm just too lazy. Like, and you have to like totally meet yourself there. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I need some help. I need to get this going. I finally met Leonardo Ringo, who is an indie rock producer. And he had been in a few different indie rock bands. Um, and so I found him, I liked his vibe. And you know, to be honest, I didn't even listen to his music. I just needed somebody to help create this vision. and 
together with him and my other collaborator, Gabriel Mayo, who is an amazing singer songwriter. And, you know, all these guys are writing in English, you guys. So go look up their bands, Gabriel Mayo and Leonardo Ringo. And um, yeah, we, we kind of have been working since March. And uh, we are making an EP of four songs. It's going to be the first of three EPs, kind of detailing this this journey. Um, a lot of my songs are very personal, so it's kind of about my personal journey of moving from Connecticut to Jakarta. So the first EP will come out in uh, later this year, and New England Baby is the first single from it. And in New England Baby, you wrote, New England Baby, You Mess Me Up. Now, why is New England so messy? Um, Well, I like that line because you could read it two different ways. It could be New England, baby, you mess me up. Or it could be talking about myself as a New England baby and talking to me, you mess me up. But either way, right, there's some messiness. Um, The idea is that we can get really comfortable where we are, no matter where you are. And sometimes it's You've, you've got everything figured. Maybe your ancestors have done most of the work and you're there and everything is pretty much taken care of and you've got your job, you've got your friends, you've got a significant whatever. Um, and, and you need to kind of put yourself completely out of that comfortable situation in order to experience growth and in order to experience that kind of little bit of suffering. You know, it's hard to welcome suffering we already have so much of it in our in our normal lives and so to seek out more i think is kind of the most courageous part of of this and of anybody who's done something big or challenging like that you you sometimes have to choose it and so that's kind of uh where that song is coming from that was ashley hamill singer and songwriter from meriden connecticut to see our entire best of 2023 collection and to listen back to the full conversations Check them out by visiting ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. Where We Live is produced by Tess Terrible and Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. 